Support for this episode of Judaism Unbound comes from the All Inclusive Podcast with Jay Ruderman. Hi, I'm Jay Ruderman. All Inclusive is a podcast focused on inclusion and social justice. Join me as I interview leaders and experts on the latest news focused on advocacy for social justice. In order to make progress that will lead to a more equitable future, honest discussions must be held. That is what All Inclusive is all about. Listen and subscribe to the All Inclusive podcast on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, and anywhere else podcasts are available. Visit the show website for more information and full episode transcripts at www.allinclusivepodcast.com. This is Judaism Unbound, episode 277, Trans-Jewish Fiction. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Dan Liebenson. And I'm Lex Rothberg. And if you remember a few weeks ago, we had a few conversations with writers talking about how we're going to intersperse interviews with people who have written books recently about Judaism or about Jewish topics into the next few series on different topics over the months ahead. And then after those two initial conversations, we launched this series on Jews of trans experience and understanding Judaism through the lens of the trans experience. And today's episode is a great kind of crossover where we're going to be speaking with somebody about Judaism and the Trans Experience, and also the author of a recent young adult novel. This novel also has to do with the trans experience, and not all of the writers that we're going to be talking to in this interspersed series are going to be that, but this one is both, and so it's a really interesting and exciting opportunity for us to explore both of these landscapes. Our guest today is Leah Moser. In addition to being an author of young adult fantasy fiction, she is a congregational rabbi. Now, I have to say that she is actually a rabbi at one of the most forward-thinking synagogues in the world. It must be the case, and not because they have a transgender rabbi. That is a wonderful thing, but there are other synagogues that have transgender rabbis. Not enough, and hopefully there'll be more. But the reason why I say that this synagogue is one of the most forward-thinking in the world is that their website is synagogue.org. So what I mean by forward-thinking is that apparently they were the first synagogue to get a URL, and they came up with synagogue.org. I'm very impressed with that. But Leah Moser is the assistant rabbi at Temple Israel in Ridgewood, New Jersey. We'll talk about her journey to the rabbinate, in fact, her journey to Judaism, in our conversation today. During her rabbinic studies, she actually received a grant for her work incorporating electronic music into Jewish prayer. Her interests include Talmud, Kabbalah, and Jewish mysticism, and the exploration of these through a queer lens. Usually on this show, we don't tend to mention some of these things that are in people's bios that are their side interests, but in this case, it's actually very relevant. So in addition to Jewish things and rabbinic things, Leah Moser enjoys fantasy and science fiction, painting, gaming, and making electronic music. And she has combined these interests in her novel, which is called Magical Princess Harriet, in which an apparently ordinary Jewish middle schooler secretly struggling with the persistent feeling that she was never meant to be a boy, stops to investigate a flicker of movement in the supposedly abandoned construction site at the end of her street, where she encounters an angel named Nuriel who tells her that she has been granted the title of princess and is now responsible for dealing with the renegade angels that have taken up residence in her school. Together with her friends, Harriet will need every ounce of courage, compassion, and intelligence she can muster if she is to outwit the devious Nephilim and come to terms with her conflicted feelings about her own gender. 
So you can see that our guest today combines her own interests in an amazing way, and we have a lot of the same interests. So we're really excited to jump into this conversation. So Leah Moser, welcome to Judaism Unbounded. So great to have you. Thanks. It's really nice to be here. Well, I'm excited to have this conversation. I was poking around your blog recently, and I came across a blog post that was actually from about a decade ago. So I don't specifically necessarily want to ask about the post in the case you don't remember a post from 10 years ago. But the particular blog post that you wrote is one about how there are similarities between coming out as trans and uh, converting to Judaism. And I found that really interesting because it was uh, connecting topics that I think people don't necessarily tend to connect. And when I've been thinking about it, I've been thinking a lot about the idea of trans these days helping people understand that the gender binary is not necessarily a binary. And maybe that's also true of Judaism. Maybe it's just not Jew and non-Jew. There's more interesting stuff going on there. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about some of those connections and also others that, that you've seen on this journey. If I'm remembering correctly, the post you're referring to, it was like a, like a list of a number of, of ways in which being transgender is similar to being a, a, a Gerritzetic, a convert to Judaism. And I think that that's a comparison that, you know, that really has, you know, like hit me early on in my transition process and has stayed with me throughout the process, really because I myself am a, am a convert to Judaism, right? That's my own story. Um, and also because I've ended up, you know, over the years working quite a bit with other folks who are either converts or who are in the process of converting. That's, that's kind of a big, meaningful thing to me. In both cases, the whole journey is structured around the idea of there being sort of a point of arrival. Not for everybody, but for at least many folks who are transitioning, there's sort of a sense that one has of this is the place that I want to get to. You know, many people's gender transition journey involves sort of a movement toward something, right? And the and and implicit in the idea of move, of a movement toward is the idea that, the idea that there's a destination to get to. It's interesting to me that in the case of in in one case, right, in the case of Judaism, we've got communally accepted ways of marking that point of arrival, the rabbi and the Beit Din and the ritual of conversion. There's more or less a, a theoretical arrival point when someone become like officially becomes Jewish in the eyes of their fellow Jews. But anyone who's gone through that process, I think, has realize that there's a point, you hit that point before that, before the recognition happens, before any official point of arrival occurs, you've, there's always got to be a period leading up to that point when the individual pretty much feels Jewish. If you haven't hit that point where you feel Jewish, like I'm Jewish already, what's the problem here? And the people around you are pretty much feeling like, oh, this person is clearly Jewish. What's the problem here? Right. If you haven't hit that point, then you may not like that's Having hit that point a while ago is the surest sign that it's the appropriate time to go through the process of acknowledging the arrival, which means that we've all that we're always kind of marking or acknowledging something that really we've already arrived at right some time ago. Mm. And I think it's it, it's an interesting comparison with the idea of transition because gender transition we don't have a, and this is one area in which. Judaism with regard to non-Jews is considerably more open and welcoming 
like built into the idea of into the binary of Jewish and non-Jewish is the idea that there is a way, there's a procedure for welcoming someone over that line, for taking someone over that line and moving them from one status into the other. That idea is not built into the idea of the of gender into the idea of gender as it exists, as we're presented with it in our society that we grow up in. And the fact that there isn't an accepted conversion and naturalization process, right, makes the whole process, I think, a lot more tricky and ambiguous and makes it, I think, maybe more difficult to um, work out, like, have I actually arrived? I think it's interesting looking at how a number of transgender Jews there's quite a lot of ritual that's come out of the, you know, the transgender Jewish community. And one of the biggest impetuses for that ritual, right, the, the, the biggest kind of category of ritual that, you know, people have been involved in creating revolves around this question of how do we mark, how do we acknowledge, how do we establish in some sort of clear way that there is a point of arrival, that the journey toward has been, you know, has been accomplished. And now we're sort of continuing our journey in. There's a lot that you just packed in, and I I was struck by a few pieces that hopefully will will intersperse throughout the rest of the episode. Um, one is I'm really struck by the framing you gave, how people before they convert are sort of seen as Jewish by certain people, and then the the moment of arrival, to use your terminology, is almost like. Um, to use Dan's terminology in the past, it's like a ratification. It's like, you already were this thing, we're making it official, but like you were this thing. And when when hearing that, it, it makes so much sense why that would fe- why that would resonate with someone's trans experience. That that said, I'm I'm always really I try to be really careful about language with all this because in both realms, actually. So when I talk to people who have converted to Judaism, for some of them, it's actually very important to use the word convert or to imply like a change happened where they weren't the thing before and then they, the thing being Jewish, and then they were. And for a wide variety of reasons, I think that it, it is very crucial for people to experience that as like a change where they weren't Jewish and then they were. For other people, there's a sense, and I, and I know people in both these categories, and it's hard because they're all valid, and it's and you can't create one perfect system for all of them. But like for other people, they really feel, you know, I was born Jewish, I just didn't know. Yeah. And there was a process where eventually I came to know that, and I made it official, and then I, you know, I dunked in a mikvah and like underwater, and I got the documents, and now I'm Jewish, and. It, it reminded me, actually, of a conversation I had with a Muslim once who used the term reversion to describe his own journey to Islam. He was not born Muslim, and he used the term that he reverted, which implied that he was in the first place. And so I was just curious to put that back to you, either on the front of converting to Judaism or with respect to gender. Like, it's really hard as somebody who is cisgender and who didn't convert to Judaism for me to try and wrestle with all this. But I think you being somebody who is traversed or not traversed <laughs> those two issues, I'm curious to hear more on that. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, there's the idea that, that that there are great truths and small truths in the world, and that the opposite, the way that you can tell the difference is the opposite of a small truth is clearly false, whereas the opposite of a great truth is also true. Hmm. And I think that that, re- that idea... Um, is springing to mind right now because it really applies to this kind of issue of identity, 
you know, identity is a big, complicated, mysterious enough thing that, you know, kind of, we're already kind of in the realm of, of great truths when we're starting to deal with it. But the, but it certainly is the case that in the case of folks who are transgender, for example, right, it is certainly the case that there are folks who understand their journey in the manner of, I have always been this way. I'm merely taking steps to confirm that in a social and, you know, maybe biological kind of way. And there are also folks who feel, as you put it, like the the sort of need to emphasize and stress, like I have been on a journey. I have gone from one place to another. I have transitioned. And where that becomes an important part of your, your, your life or your story. And that certainly applies in the case of converts to Judaism as well. I think that for myself, at least, you know, I, I use the language that I do because for myself, there's something really deeply meaningful about the idea of moving across a boundary, right? Of making a journey, of making, of taking a trip. You know, I think that's really baked into our sort of core mythology as a people. Mm-hmm. Our sort of central holy scriptural text ends at a point where we're about to cross over a river and like pass a boundary in order to enter from one place into another and one state of being into another. And that for me is one of the most meaningful aspects of Judaism. And so for me, I get a lot of personal and intellectual and spiritual and emotional good stuff out of thinking in terms of moving across those boundaries, right? And making a journey. But it's absolutely the case that there's, you know, there's that other way of looking at it, which is equally valid of this is actually like that all the steps involved in transition, whether from Judaism to Jewish to non-Jewish to Jewish or from one gender status to another, um, that ultimately we're talking about externals and that that on an internal or spiritual level, that identity is something kind of that comes preformed, that like one was always this way and that one's taking merely taking steps to confirm that. I think both of those are true (laughs) about the same experience. Like so many things, it kind of ultimately boils down to what are the stories that you can tell about your experience that are going to make it meaningful to you? So much of the meaning that we derive from any experience that we have is sort of like worked out after the experience has already happened. We realize we have had an experience and now we're going to tell a story in order to explain or make sense of that experience to ourselves. It can um, lead to an incredible diversity of stories that we tell about what may be a similar or even fundamentally the same experience. So Lex and I both uh, independently picked up, it's not so hard to do, it's the first line in your bio, but we picked up on this fact that you talk about in your bio how you were living in Japan or you were in Japan for a time when you first began to, your I don't remember exactly the language that you used, but to have this relationship with Judaism. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if you could tell a little bit about that story. You're not actually the first person on this podcast to talk about the journey of their connection to Judaism starting in Japan. So I'm sort of wondering whether there's actually something going on there as well. Looking back on my time in Japan, it was an interesting combination of feeling very at home, right? I felt very at home living in Japan. It was not um, at all a hard place to live for me. But at the same time, feeling very separated from the sort of outside context that had sort of defined my life up to that point, right? I was separate from family. I was separate from friends. I was separate from like the various school things that I had been involved in for for five plus years up to that point. 
I was kind of separate from a lot of the external sort of institutions and social kind of um, arrangements that had sort of defined my life up to that point. And at the same time, was in kind of a quiet place, right? Um, it was a, it was not you know a terribly stressful or unpleasant thing to be living in Japan. And I think the combination of those two factors made it possible to kind of explore ways of looking at myself and ways of looking at the world that I really wouldn't have felt confident exploring before. Even at that time, like even living in a completely different part of the world that where I, you know, where the very few people that I knew were acquaintances that I had made through my work, even that, you know, actually created a certain amount of social friction when I started talking about converting to Judaism. We had some friends at the time who we hung out with quite a lot. And I remember bringing up with them one evening that I was considering converting to Judaism. And there was some, there was an extremely, um, it was a, it was an extremely tense conversation. I think sometimes being separate from your pre-existing social circles can, can leave room for exploring possibilities that maybe didn't seem like possibilities where you were and with whom you were before. So on the front of exploring new possibilities, you wrote a book that explores <laughs> new possibilities. It's called Magical Princess Harriet, and I really liked it, and I wanted to talk about it with you. Okay, so um, for context, children's book or young adult book, um, the protagonist is in middle school, mm -hmm. and you take genres of magic and fantasy and genres of, I don't know, like kid in school what, what is what is that realistic fiction like you you blend those two things and it's fun and there's a lot of jewish oh wow there is a lot of jewish and it is it's a joy for somebody who i guess like i'm so used to the magical books i read not feeling like jewish necessarily mm -hmm. um not that that makes them any worse or any better it's just like I'm, I'm not used to that collision course yeah and i read your book and i actually i read it shortly after i read a different book with one of our past guests sophia pasternak which also does some magic and does some jewish together and so i'm on this kick right now and all of a sudden i'm like an advocate for something i didn't know i was an advocate for which is like let's do jewish magic books and so i'd love to hear what led you to do that and without too many spoilers, like, what is this book and why should folks uh, be interested in it? For a long time, when people were asking me what the book was, I was sort of facetiously describing it as transgender Jewish Sailor Moon. And <laughs> as weird as that sounds, it still, it still feels like a pretty decent description. So Sailor Moon is a series of manga, of, of comic books, that was later translated into a into an anime into a comic into a into a cartoon series it's a japanese series which ultimately um, kind of helped define a genre that's generally referred to as magical girl teenage or preteen girls right in middle school or high school who are granted magical powers through some sort of agency that usually involves some sort of magical transformation process. Um, that's a premise that seemed kind of tailor-made to me for telling a story about a transgender preteen, right? It's just sort of seemed like a perfect premise to the extent that when I started writing it, I was kind of surprised that there hadn't been more, you know, that there hadn't been more crossover there already. 
But what really got me started writing the book was reading an article in, this was one of the very earliest issues of the Jewish Review of Books, entitled, what was it called? Why There Is No Jewish Narnia. And the article makes the argument that there's a reason why Jewish authors are comparatively underrepresented in the realm of genre fantasy. And that that reason has to do with the fact that fantasy as a genre tends to be very wrapped up in a certain idealized nostalgia for a past, for the past, especially for a medieval past. And that for Jews in particular, that medieval past, which is typically idealized in fantasy fiction, is not remembered as an idealistic time, right? It's a time when Jews were facing horrible persecution, being murdered for our beliefs, etc. It's a good argument as far as it goes, but I remember reading the article and being sort of feeling sort of indignant as at that point a fairly newly minted Jew who at the same time has had and continues to have a great deal of love for fantasy fiction. And I felt the sort of desire to prove it wrong, to make an argument that in fact, the reason why there isn't any Jewish Narnia up to this point is that no one's bothered writing it yet and that, that, that there needs to be one. So right around the time that I was sort of in my second year of rabbinical school and I had come out and I was just starting to begin transitioning, I, I wasn't even on hormones yet. It was a very kind of volatile time in my life and identity. And I think kind of out of that sort of sense of well, darn it, there ought to be a Jewish Narnia. And also out of that sense that there ought to be more young adult fiction that deals with being transgender in a way that doesn't kind of fall back on these tired old tropes of it's sad to be transgender. You know, Mm. I wanted to write something that was exciting and fun and funny and engaging um, that theoretically might be actually enjoyable to read. (laughs) for someone who was, you know, Jewish and transgender and who liked those kind of stories. So I got started writing it at that point, you know, rabbinical school, I, it took a while to find a pulpit. And so in the, in, while I was sort of looking for where I was going to be a rabbi, I finished the book and put it out. And um, it was, it was a really great experience. I had always wanted to write a book and, and then I did. So, okay, so that's really good context. And give us a little more about the the characters. I mean, you've got this Princess Harriet who's in the title, but it's not just a book about her. I mean, it, she's the protagonist and it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful journey that we're taking on. But in in my view, if I were to, to talk about this book, I would talk about Harriet and I would talk about, um, this isn't too much of a spoiler because it's like some of the opening pages, but sort of encounters with angelic kinds of beings um, but more than that, it's not just Harriet, it's it's her friends. Mm-hmm. And one of her close friends, her closest friend, especially at the beginning, is named Frances and has her own really deep character development. And you learn, although it's not quite said directly, but you you basically learn that she is on the autism spectrum. And she, I, I think the people reading that book of whatever age are are being educated about that as well. And it's it's a really profound thing. Um, but it's it's two different characters that each do that. And so I was curious if you could talk about them, about the book a little bit in, in more detail, uh, in addition to what led to you writing it in the first place. The three main characters of the book are Harriet and her two friends, Francis and Aiden. 
So she is she starts out the book Friends with Francis and she meets Aiden like partway into the first part of the book. Harriet begins the story not really being either not being aware of or not acknowledging that she's transgender. And a big part of the of what pushes her into actually looking at and dealing with those feelings is this sort of supernatural encounter she has with an angel who shows up and tells her, you know, congratulations, you're a princess. Now go fight the forces of darkness. Her <laughs> friend Francis is autistic and is a she she they've they they are they've been friends for a long time they went they go to they they go to shul together they belong to the same hebrew school class they 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 go to the same middle school and francis is the first person that harriet talks to about any of this for one thing i think it says something important about francis and the relationship that she has with harriet that harriet feels comfortable enough to kind of share something which at that point for her is still extremely embarrassing with this friend. And I think it also says a lot about Francis as a person that to me, there's something very important about presenting the experience of being transgender or presenting the experience of being autistic, not from an external point of view, but from an internal point of view. Because I think a lot of literature and a lot of discourse around being transgender or around being autistic tends to focus on these kind of things from the outside, right? What ways do transgender people make people who are not transgender feel? Tends to be the sort of central question of a lot of media around being transgender. And I think the same thing applies to folks who are autistic as well, right? How do non-autistic people, how do allistic people feel about autistic people? There's a huge gap, even today, there's a huge gap in the amount of media out there that's more focused on the question of how do autistic folks actually feel in worlds that are made up of people and designed for people who aren't these things. And I hope that Magical Princess Harriet maybe makes some kind of small step in the direction of kind of rectifying that imbalance, understanding that the imbalance is way too big for any one random person to rectify. I'm thinking about the genre of of uh, fantasy, of science fiction, of speculative fiction more broadly, and I'm I'm just sort of thinking about how that explanation that there's no Jewish Narnia because Jews have a particular allergy to fantasy because of the Middle Ages, that doesn't land on me quite right because I feel like there isn't a lot of Jewish sci-fi too. I don't know what objections Jews have about the future. Uh, there <laughs> isn't you know, a lot of kind of that, that type of speculative fiction, except for kind of in the Bible, which was our recent series uh, that we did. And I, I wonder if like maybe we just kind of did all our creative work back then and and then uh you know didn't want to do that kind of stuff anymore uh like the sci-fi in Ezekiel for example but um I'm curious about you you talking a little bit about those genres of fiction and why they're important beyond Judaism and then what might be missing from a Jewish world that doesn't have those kinds of literature Starting with your first question, right, which is what's the relevance of these genres, which I, I, I will call like speculative fiction outside of Judaism or in a, in a world which includes Judaism, but is not encapsulated, in, encompassed by Judaism. I think the fundamental thing that's significant about speculative fiction is in many respects related to the thing that's significant about fiction in general. So J.R.R. Tolkien has a particular way of talking about writing fantasy. 
And the way that he has of talking about writing fantasy is that fantasy for him is a form of sub-creation. And what that means is God creates the world. Tolkien is a religious person. He's viewing the world through a religious lens. God creates the world. God creates humanity. But what's interesting about that is that in humanity, God has created a creation that is capable of creating human beings through the the, the medium of human imagination are capable of doing the exact same thing in a smaller form, right? In In a microcosmic way, are capable of doing the exact same thing that God did in creating the world. God creates the world, in the world are humans, humans go on to create their own little worlds. I mean, that idea of imitating God, of course, is really central, not only to the Christianity that was a big part of Tolkien's life, but is also a really important functioning, operating kind of concept within Judaism. So many of our core values in Judaism are articulated in the mode of God is holy, so you shall be holy too. God is righteous, so you shall be righteous too. God takes care of the widow, the stranger, and the orphan. Therefore, you must take care of the widow, stranger, and the orphan, right? That whole notion of we are the we should be this way because that is the way that God does. God rested on the seventh day we rest on the seventh day too, right? And by extension, right, God creates, and so too do human beings create. I mean, interestingly, that way of looking at creativity is, I think, really deeply baked into, um, I mean, for one thing, it's really deeply baked into the Kabbalistic tradition, right, that gets its start, or like that really sort of kicks off in the Middle Ages with the Zohar. It's the aspect of Judaism that is most centrally involved in this speculative faculty of the human, of human, of the human mind, which is an absolutely important and core faculty of human beings. And it's something that has been deeply neglected in Judaism for, uh, let's call it the last two centuries. That sort of speculative faculty is only just now being rediscovered by the Jewish people. And I think it's a really important thing for us to rediscover. I actually wanted to make a little bit of a connection between what you're saying and what you're doing and the movement that you're part of and that some of your blog posts were about Reconstructionism, because for those who are kind of in the know, they kind of know that the magnum opus of Jewish thought of the 20th century was Mordecai Kaplan's Judaism as a Civilization. But if you actually pick up that book, it is a very heavy, thick book with writing that is kind of uh, heavy. And I kind of really would love to see the short fiction version of Judaism as a Civilization, (laughs) or maybe the manga or anime version, right? Because I I think about another of the most significant thinkers of the really the late 19th century, but Theodore Herzl, in in terms of Zionism, he actually wrote a novel. And I don't really know how much the novel really made the difference in terms of the movement taking off. But I wonder, you know, it feels to me like we what we're missing in Judaism today is some sense of what a different Jewish future might look like that was nevertheless intensely tied to Jewish texts and Jewish ideas and Jewish people and and perhaps defined in new ways. And I would love to see that fiction. So I'm wondering, basically, if there are ways that 
you could connect the the work or if you do connect the work that you're doing even whether in this novel or in future novels that you might want to write and are there certain things that you feel like you're trying to say about Judaism not only about trans folk and autistic folk you know but that but about their their encounter with Judaism itself where we may be learning through their eyes about Judaism and and are there things that that you're trying to accomplish through fiction that other people might be trying to accomplish through nonfiction? It's one of the great ironies of the early Reconstructionist movement that like Kaplan and his disciples, one of the central ideological goals of Reconstructionism was to center art in the development of Jewish civilization, right? One of the theses of the early Reconstructionist was art is an important manifestation of civilization. And so we should encourage the flourishing and development of Jewish art. You know, the irony of that is that it was something that they harped on quite a bit and it was the least well real it, it wasn't the most well realized aspect of reconstruction of early reconstructionism. I mean, we've got a few great examples of interesting Jewish art coming out of the reconstructionist movement. I'm thinking in particular of of Judith Kaplan's or or later Jewish Judith Eisenstein's um cantata What is Torah? Really fascinating piece of musical theater that was um, actually performed a number of times as far as I as as far as I know in US Army camps during World War II. But there's not a whole lot of reconstructionist art out there. There's something about the idea of art that I think really speaks to the idea of reconstructionism as a movement, which is the idea that the religious values of Judaism are expressed not only through these sort of very traditional forms of Torah study and and worship, but also through all the different forms that a civilization takes. And also just like, like we live in a, in a world where like so much young adult fiction is centered around various religions, religious traditions, which existed side by side with Judaism in the ancient world. There's a million children's books out there about Greek mythology. There's a million children's books out there about Roman mythology. There's a million children's books out there that are kind of that are kind of retreading that are about Norse mythology or retreading these various kind of mythological themes. We've got all this material in Judaism that no one has any exposure to whatsoever that is so exciting and so just ripe for presenting in new and interesting ways that are going to be, I think, engaging not only for kids and teens, but also for adults. I read your book, and I read it as I am in the midst of a chavruta, a study relationship with a friend of mine, where we are learning our way through the book of one Enoch, of Enoch. The, the, there's, there's different books of Enoch. This is the first one that sometimes just gets called Enoch, but there's later ones too. And I say that because... The book of Enoch is filled with all these angel figures, demon figures, um, ways in which these angel figures and humans have sex and then have children, and then those children have various problematic relationships with the world. It's all sorts of interesting stuff. And they're, this group called the Nephilim, uh-huh. it plays a really big role. The Nephilim being a, a sort of a quick phrase in the sixth chapter of the book of Genesis that just gets dropped out of nowhere. And then then it's gone. Oh, by the like, way, there were like, Nephilim. Yeah, there's these like weird fantasy figures that exist and are part deity and part human. But like, 
Next, Noah's Ark, fine. Um, but I read your book while I'm in the midst of Enoch, and it was for me, it was like, oh, I'm I'm almost reading one big book. It's just that one was written a few thousand years ago and one was now. There were characters in your book that you, you drew beautifully on Talmud and on Kabbalah, but like some of the characters that that play a pretty big role actually pop up. I don't know if it's first, but really early in the book of Enoch. And what, and the reason I bring all this up is because it hints at something I'm always harping mm-hmm. on, which is Enoch didn't make it in. Mm-hmm. Enoch is not, quote unquote, if you ask most people, it's not like Jewish literature or it's certainly not Bible. Now, part of why I'm doing this chavruta with a friend, having this study relationship, and I'm calling it like a chavruta, which is a Jewish term, uh-huh. is that I believe the process of recuperating texts that were seen as holy by Jews, even if they're not now necessarily, is a really important process. Now, what's interesting about your book is you're doing that even with sort of material that is marked as Jewish, with Kabbalah, with all sorts of stuff that is sort of in the Jewish, mm-hmm. this is like lowercase c canon, later canons, but which people don't know about. And I, and all this ties to what you and Dan brought up in different ways before, which is like somehow this realm of fantasy we think of as not particularly Jewish, but like break open that Talmud for a couple seconds and you get, you get demons, you get angels, you get, you get monsters, you get all sorts of stuff. And I think the processes that led to us not thinking of this stuff as Jewish are actually so interesting because it's like totally false. The second you actually look at the text to say that fantasy is a foreign genre. So I'd love to hear from you. I mean, A, if you have thoughts about Enoch, that'd be cool. Like, but that's sort of a long shot. B, if you if you wanted to talk more about like your relationship to Kabbalah or some of these hidden Jewish texts that people don't know about and and what it felt like to bring that to life in your book, that would be really cool. As I think you're maybe sort of like kind of noticing, I mind Enoch for demon names, right? Like, where else am I going to find good demon? Ne- where, am I, where else am I going to find good Nephilim names and good old Enoch? So, like, like absolutely kudos for reclaiming that one and doing some conversa on it. Um, so, you bring up this idea that fantasy is and and mythology, as I, I, if we want to kind of you know use the dirty word of mythology, <laughs> is like alien or foreign to Judaism. Judaism as being so not right. I think what I hate about it so much is this. It all ultimately boils down to respectability politics, the kind of politics which says we have to edit out anything that is distinct or particular about who we are as a people in order to be a model minority so that so that we're accepted within society. That fundamentally is the story of how we got rid of Jewish mysticism in our in our tradition. Back, you know, in the 1800s, there was this real effort on the part of Jewish intellectuals to be accepted in the realm of Western academia. And part and parcel of that was the Wissenschaft des Judentums, the the science of Judaism, the basic premise of which was to kind of boil Judaism down into sort of a form of philosophy that would be understandable through the lens of Western rationalism. And so in order to become accepted by the Western world as it then existed, Judaism ended up completely dumping out all of the superstitions, all the demons, all the angels, all the reincarnation, all that fun stuff. We dumped it out in order to be accepted as part of secular society. And then the horrible irony of it is that secular society moved on. 
we now live mm-hmm. in a world where <laughs> where religion isn't rationalistic anymore and yet we hold on to this delusion of rationalism as being the ben, the, the end all and be all of Jewish religion out of this kind of misplaced desire to sort of be um you know accepted right to 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 not be too weird to not be the weird minority there's so much that is spiritually engaging that is fascinating that is powerful that is moving in Judaism that doesn't fall into that sort of maimonidean rationalistic box and i think that we've lost an awful lot of great stuff we've failed to take advantage of a great deal of stuff that exists within Judaism and that works perfectly well in the context of progressive Judaism, but which a lot of progressive Jews either don't know that it exists because we inherit like maybe three or four generations of people denying that it exists or feel like somehow it doesn't have a place in Judaism, but it does. It really does. Well, this is what I, I think I, I was trying to get at before when I was talking about fiction, and, and I think you're really helping me grasp it here, which is that I'm kind of picking up on what you said earlier that that I understood to be fundamentally like, we have to tell stories of happy trans kids, right? Why? Yeah. Otherwise, there's not a plausibility structure to be a happy trans person right there. So, so if you understand yourself to be trans, then you can say, well, I'll make the best of it. I'll do as well as I can. But there's not really a story where you're just, well, this is a great celebration, you know, and and on our podcast before, Abby Stein has talked about how, you know, we shouldn't be talking about tolerance. That's for lactose. And we should be talking about celebrating. And so you can kind of wrap your mind around that intellectually. Yes, we should celebrate. But you don't really know what it is to celebrate until you've actually celebrated, until you've experienced that. And if you can't experience it in person, then at least you can experience it through a story. And I think what I'm struggling to grasp at, or what I'm trying to say, is that until we have some stories about a Judaism that works differently from the intellectual, you know, what you were talking about, the Judaism that we've inherited. Yeah, we have stories maybe from the Torah, from the Talmud, or even the Kabbalah from a long time ago, but that seems like from a days long past. We need to have stories that say, well, what would it look like in the future where we are rational, where we are educated, but nevertheless, we're embracing these kind of mystical, magical ideas. What would that look like? And we need, I think, an artist to show us what that might look like before we can really know how how to move toward it. Absolutely. You want to know what the most fantastical, magical aspect of my entire novel is? It's not the demons. It's not the Nephilim. It's not the girl who can transform into a magical princess. The most fantastical, implausible, magical thing about the entire book is that there are two Jewish characters who are 12 years old and who actually give a crap about Judaism. (laughs) That's Like, you want to know what that, like, that's my fantasy. But like you said, it's all about creating plausibility structures, telling a story of the thing that maybe you want to see that seems impossible. But then once you've told a story about it, maybe it seems a little less impossible. So as we close out, are there any other pieces from this conversation or anything that you want to leave our listeners with as they head off to whatever's next? I talked earlier a little bit about how, for me at least... I prefer leaning on the side of that identity issue, that identity question in a way that kind of emphasizes the sort of movement part, the movement across a boundary part. 
that there's, you know, ways of looking at a movement from being non-Jewish to being Jewish, a ways of looking at the movement from being um, in one gendered place into another that are sort of like, I've always been here, I'm just affirming that now, versus ways of, of, of emphasizing the disjunction, emphasizing the, I am, I've been on a journey. One of the reasons why I really like to emphasize that being on a journey part is because it really puts the focus front and center on the sheer amount of gratitude that I think one ought to have for being in a place. I came to Judaism relatively late in life compared to folks who were brought up Jewish. And there are times when, you know, it's easy to wish, you know, I, I wish I'd had more time to, to, <laughs> to learn about Judaism over the course of my life. But there's the way in which this has really been a, a benefit to me and a way in which I'm actually very grateful for coming to Judaism in the direction that I did is precisely because I cannot forget what an immense privilege it is to be a part of this people and to be a part of this religious tradition. And I think that there are so many things about Jewish life, whether in the diaspora or in Israel or in any part of the world, there are so many things about being transgender that can make it so difficult to live, can make it so difficult to sit in a comfortable and relaxed, healthy way in those identities. It's way too easy to lose sight of what an unbelievable privilege it is to be in that place that one has arrived, however one has managed to arrive there. It's good to be here. Thank you so much, Leah Moser, for joining us. This has been a fantastic conversation. Thanks for having me. This has been a fun chat. This has been a fun chat, and we hope it was a meaningful one for all of you out there listening. We want to close out this conversation in the same way that we always do, by encouraging you to be in touch with us, and there are a wide variety of ways for you to do that. First, you can head to our Facebook page or our Instagram handle or our Twitter handle. All of those are at Judaism Unbound and the various different apps. You can head to our website, JudaismUnbound.com. You can hit us up via email at dan at JudaismUnbound.com or lex at JudaismUnbound.com. The last request we'd like to make is that we deeply appreciate any amount of financial donation that you're able to set aside for us, and you can make a donation on either a monthly recurring basis or just as a one-time gift at judaismunbound.com donate. Another closing note is that support for this episode of Judaism Unbound comes from the Ashman Family JCC in Palo Alto, California, whose vision is to be the architects of the Jewish future. The Ashman Family JCC empowers you to experience Jewish paths toward a life of joy, purpose, and meaning through innovative Jewish learning and wellness programs, community building, and initiatives to develop the next generation of Jewish leaders. Learn more at www.paloaltojcc.org. And with that, this has been Judaism Unbound.